Welcome, dear listeners, to a world that lies beyond the realm of the ordinary, where the mysterious and the unexplained converge. Prepare yourselves for an audio journey that will send shivers down your spine and make your heart race. Welcome to Chillers and Thrillers, the paranormal podcast that delves into the darkest corners of the unknown and where the shadows hold secrets. Hello and welcome to Chillers and Thrillers, the paranormal podcast where I read your true stories of the strange and unexplained. No gore, no comedy, no true crime, just 100% spooky tales. In today's episode, we'll be taking a trip down to the Appalachia region of the United States. A few years ago, while browsing Reddit for my fulfillment of spooky tales, I came across the term hate. I unfortunately never saved the original post, but it definitely piqued my curiosity into finding out about a new entity in the paranormal that I was previously unaware of. I found out that the term haint is believed to have originated from the verb haunter, which means to stalk or inhabit. The term haint originated from the Gula Geechee tribe, and an oversimplification of it is to simply say it stands for a haunt or ghost. But if you read more about it, there's a lot more nuance to it. So what exactly is a haint? A haint is a specific type of haunting, one that you want to ward off with all your might. But from my research, it seems as if different parts of the Appalachia have different definitions for haints. For some, it's simply a restless spirit who is bothersome. To others, it's a negative presence. And to even more, it can invade someone's life and even possess a person. There are what many of us would call superstitions that people practice to keep the haints away. A famous one is painting the ceiling of your porch a shade of blue called haint blue. This practice is to confuse the haint into thinking they see the heaven above and leave your home alone. I've also seen some people refer to that the blue makes the haint think it's water and that they pass through the water. Haints are also notorious for being obsessed with counting. So placing a number of stones on porches or glass bottles from trees will also keep the haints from entering your home since they'll be too busy counting and once the sun comes up, the haint goes away. Some of the Gullah Geechee descendants in the Carolinas would paper their walls with newspaper so the haint would be too busy counting all the words. Other than the haints, the Appalachia region also has a very strong tendency towards familial folklore and storytelling. There are tales and tales of generational hauntings, omens, premonitions, or other strange events that have been passed down from family members. Then, there's also local folklore about the Appalachia region itself, many that surround the deep woods, such as the Hide Behind and Witches. In researching this topic more, I was struck by how similar the Appalachia and Southern states' culture are to my mom's original home state of Sierra in northern Brazil, and I think this may explain my fondness for it. The people in Appalachia have often been incorrectly stereotyped as dim-witted, prone to violence, or lazy, when in reality, Appalachia history shows the opposite to be true. Their beliefs and traditions have been derided and mocked, but in my opinion, there seems to be a very earnest respectfulness and honesty when it comes to the beliefs of the paranormal and being open to unexplained occurrences, which personally I really appreciate because if there's something I can't stand, it's cynicism. And anyway, I always believe it's better to prevent than to cure. So if placing glass bottles on a tree 
and painting my porch in blue will protect me, I'm all for it. Lastly, I'd also like to thank the kind people of the Appalachia subreddit who provided me with some great familial stories and folklore and guided me in the right direction for this podcast. And a very hearty thank you to the Hank Country team. They are releasing a book called Hank Country, Dark Folk Tales from the Hills and Hollers of Eastern Kentucky, and they were incredibly kind enough to share the story, The Old Owsley County Jail, with me for this podcast. Please check them out. I've linked their Facebook page in the show notes. I hope I do some service to Appalachia, but I heartily recommend you check out and support Appalachia citizens who share their stories and everyday life on YouTube and social media. Before we begin with our stories, here's a couple of things you can do to ward off hates. Since they have a compulsion to count things, you can hang a broom over your door. If a haint enters your house, it will be compelled to count all the bristles, which it will not finish before dawn. Leave an open book next to your bed. They will not be able to touch you without counting the words. Each night, you can throw out a jar of seeds or beans, depends on who you're asking, and they will spend the night counting, which they will not finish before dawn. Reddit user NoFishing5325 was kind enough to share with me some of her grandmother's superstitious beliefs. If you moved, you could not take the broom. You had to buy a new one because the old one just carries the troubles from the last place. Good fortune will never enter a house with spiderwebs. A bird in your house is a symbol of death. A picture that falls off the wall is as well. Most likely the person who is in the picture. In grandma's world, every itch meant something. An itch on one hand meant money, while the other meant a letter was on the way. If silverware falls, you are getting a visitor. She never walked past a penny on the street, and she never did the laundry on Saturdays or Sundays. Another user also shared with me the tradition of the backward supper, or what I also found out is sometimes referred to as a dumb supper, which according to the website, the blind pig and the acorn. The purpose of a dumb supper is for a young unmarried woman to see the spirit of the man she is going to marry. The meal is prepared in complete silence, no talking whatsoever. Most people believe that you would walk backwards while cooking and serving the dumb supper. When the dinner is done, an extra place is set at the table, and the young girl, or girls if done in a group, open all the windows and doors and take their place at the table and bow their head. Sometimes all the lights were blown out as well. The phantom husbands are supposed to enter in silence. Each girl should be able to recognize the husband that sits down beside her. If no one appears, it means that she would never marry. If only a dark blob appeared, it meant she would die within the year. Now, let's get started with our stories. The first story, as I mentioned, was kindly shared with me by the Hank Country team and is an excerpt from their upcoming book, Hank Country, Dark Folk Tales from the Hills and Hollers of Eastern Kentucky. The Old Owsley County Jail, told by Darren Mays. My first few memories of the Owsley County Jail in Boonville, Kentucky was when I was between my third and fourth birthdays. This would have been around 1957-1958. My dad was appointed county jailer when the jailer in office at the time decided to abruptly leave the position. In 1955, when I was a one-year-old, my parents moved to the old Owsley County Jail from our small house on Route 30W, about five miles from town. I was too young to remember the move. The older siblings recalled those days, but my twin sister and I were too young. My first impressions were of being scared of the state troopers whenever they brought someone to the jail. I would run and hide. 
I finally got to the point that I wasn't afraid of them though. The jail that we ultimately moved into is old today, but in the late 1950s, it was less than 30 years old. It was built in 1930, I believe. It replaced an older building that once sat in an area close to where this one was located. The jail was on Jockey Street, so named because it was a street everyone tied their horses to the hitching rails when they came to Boonville in the horse and buggy days. The jail was built from large sand rock cut from a section of the South Fork of the Kentucky River that ran through the county. It had a full basement that had several rooms and a hallway. The living quarters had the same number of rooms and a hallway as well. The building had running water and bathroom facilities, but no showers or bathtubs. It also had to be heated with warm morning heating stoves, of which there were three in the living quarters, and two upstairs where the inmates were housed. There were two sets of stairs to get to the inmate quarters. The upstairs had one very large room, and inside the room were two cast iron cages with bunk beds that the inmates used to sleep in. There were also beds outside the cages, and those beds were used much more than the ones inside the cages. There were two other rooms separate from the big room, and one of them was for female prisoners. It wasn't unusual to hear noises throughout the jail. The cages had metal floors, and those would pop and crack and make creepy sounds. It didn't help that we had a theater just down the street, and they frequently had scary movies, such as the highly popular Hitchcock films of the era. So I was a little jittery to begin with at that age. Several fellows have told some spooky stories about things they had seen, but I usually brushed it off as a result of intoxication or a hangover hallucination. One such story from a couple of men who had been incarcerated for a few days. They claimed they heard clanging sounds behind one of the big cages. They had chosen to sleep outside the cages on cots to be close to the heating stove. The clanging sounds would get loud, then not as loud, until they would stop for a few minutes. Then they'd resume. After a few minutes of that, which they later said felt like an eternity, the clanging sounds were joined by a low, shrill scream, followed by a moan. Neither man was interested in walking around the cage to see what was causing the sounds. Finally, one of the men got up from his cot and slowly made his way to the edge of the cage. There was about four feet between the wall and the cage, and that pathway was not well lit. He saw in the distance what he later said chilled his blood. In the back end of the cage, next to the west wall, he saw a figure, a headless man. When his eyes drifted downwards, he saw the man was holding something. He finally recognized it was a head. The figure was holding his own head, gripping it by the hair. He was so scared he couldn't talk, couldn't speak. He finally made his way back to the cot and told his jail companion what he saw. He was crying. Both men jumped up and went to the front door, a huge metal door with a small rectangle opening to pass food and beverages and so forth through. The metal door was not very snug and could be shaken back and forth. They started shaking and making a loud noise, loud enough to be heard from downstairs. The family was in bed at the time, but we could hear the two men banging and shouting. I got out of bed and went to my dad's room, and together we went upstairs to see what was wrong. That's when we saw two of the most terrified individuals I've ever witnessed. 
They were both crying and begging for us to let them out and relayed what they had seen to us. Dad opened the door and walked in and asked them what they saw and where. The one inmate recounted his story. Dad walked back through the area he pointed towards, but there was nothing to see. He walked around both cages. Nothing. The two men were still not satisfied, begging Dad if they could come downstairs and stay in our living quarters for the remainder of the night. And Dad said yes. They stayed in the living room and slept on two couches we had. It took them quite a while to settle their nerves. They were able to get out of the jail the next morning, to their relief. It must have been, however, there were times that I had to be in the upstairs quarters by myself after that. I was about 12 at the time. Sometimes the jail would be empty and I had to carry coal to the upstairs from the basement coal bin, which was another gloomy, poorly lit, and scary part of the building. I carried two buckets of coals up four flights of stairs to reach the upstairs and I had to make about three trips. There were many times I recall the night those guys told us about when I was in the room by myself. I never saw anything, but I did occasionally hear noises. I was scared. A story like that will cause the bravest of people to look over your shoulders at times. It will make your skin feel like it's crawling. I tried to block it out. The coal had to be delivered to the warm morning stoves, and that was my job. I can't verify if the one fellow saw what he said he did, but if I'm any judge of what a terrified person looks and sounds like, I know in that man's mind he saw something that night, and it was very real. Grandpa George Submitted by user aadyer01 from Jezebel.com My grandfather George was raised in a very prominent family in central Kentucky, in a home that my great-great-aunt Lucy and her husband Roy had lived in, until his death in 1980 and her death in the early 2000s. The home was a large farmhouse that always looked like a museum exhibit that would move you back decades like a time machine. The home had been updated throughout the years with modern conveniences like running water and electricity. Except for one room, the dying room, which never got electricity. The dying room was used by family members that were on their deathbed, so family and friends could come by and say goodbye and pay their respects. My grandfather eventually met a lady from Eastern Kentucky, and after they wed, he moved east to be with her. He would frequently return to Central Kentucky to stay in contact with family. My grandfather was diagnosed with cancer in the late 1970s, and he was on his deathbed in the early 80s, in his Eastern Kentucky home with his wife and their kids. On his final night, he would wake up for a few moments and would find the strength to mutter, dining room. So my grandmother and the kids would get him out of bed and move him to the dining room. He would say, no, no, and then move him back to bed. This would happen every 15 to 20 minutes throughout the night. The family would move him to different rooms in the home, but he would always end up back in bed. The timing got closer and closer together until 7 a.m. the next morning when he passed away. The family in central Kentucky was notified of his passing, but Aunt Lucy and Roy had already started making the trip east. Once arriving, Aunt Lucy approached my mother to let her know what had happened throughout the previous night. She sat my mother down and began saying, Just as we were getting in bed last night, someone knocked on the back door. We looked at the bedroom window overlooking the back door, and no one was there. 
15 to 20 minutes later, someone knocked on the front door. But by the time we got to the front door, no one was there. Another 15 to 20 minutes later, there was another knock on the back door. And again, no one was there. The knocking got closer and closer as PM turned to AM, and eventually turning to constant banging on the windows and doors. My Aunt Lucy said, Roy and I sat up in our beds all night listening to the knocking and banging on the doors and windows. Then you could see and feel heat radiating out of the walls of the home. Then, all of a sudden, at 7 a.m., everything went silent and the house cooled back down. Aunt Lucy and Roy turned to each other and said, That's George. We're late. We need to head east. When my mother and Aunt Lucy compared their stories, they realized it must have been my grandfather trying to get to the dining room, as he was accustomed to when family members were near death in his younger days. The Stone on the Tombstone, submitted by Reddit user Debo Almighty. This first happened when I was a younger kid, maybe around 10 or 11. My cousins and I were staying with our parents at a family campground way out in the Appalachians in West Virginia. We were always going off and exploring the woods, all the nature and everything, and we knew that down the road from the camp, there was a path that led to a big field. So we all decided that we were going to walk down one day and take the path up to the field and just go play around. When we get to the field, we're kind of surprised to see it's maintained and the grass is mowed, or at least it's not tall, and we're playing out there. And we see off in the distance that there's something with a black wrought iron fence around it. And it turns out to be an incredibly old cemetery. Now, what immediately registered as creepy is the fact that there's no way to get to that cemetery except by foot. It's surrounded by acres and acres of field. The gate to the fence is locked, so we climbed it and go in, and we're checking out the tombstones. They're all from the 1930s and back just very old. We noticed a lot of them have little mementos and stuff left on them. And my cousin sees this big shiny stone on one of them and he pockets it. And eventually we end up back home. That night, we all wake up to a loud banging on the front door. It sounded like someone is straight up trying to kick the door down and we're all freaking out. We're in the cabin for kids by ourselves, and all of our parents are surely asleep. I'm paralyzed on one sofa, begging my cousin to look out the window, when suddenly, the banging stops. We all crowd together on my couch, and no one moves until the sun comes up. So my cousins and I figure maybe it's the stone he took, and we needed to put it back. There's just a little problem. We can't find it. Eventually, we assume he lost it somewhere or something. But it's not until we make our way back to that cemetery, a few days later, with some other cousins that just arrived, that we find the damn stone, right back where he took it from, sitting on top of that tombstone. My name is Marion Duchesne, submitted by Reddit user Jalcott. I'm a psychiatric nurse. Early in my career, I worked at a residential mental health facility. There was a resident I'll call Marion Duchesne. He was an elective mute, which simply means that he didn't, wouldn't, or couldn't talk, but there was no pathological findings as to why. 
He had spoken earlier in his life and in fact seemed quite normal back then, with the notable exception of being close to seven feet tall. He'd been raised in the deep south and joined the military when he was 19. After boot camp, he was stationed somewhere in the south, and one night, he just vanished. It was declared an AWOL for years, and finally, he was declared missing and dead. Ten years later, a seven-foot-tall man walked into a VA hospital emergency room in my part of the Midwest and said to the receptionist, My name is Marion Duchesne, and I've been dead for ten years. Those were the last words he ever spoke. He was covered with dust, and he was wearing the same clothes he'd been reported to be wearing the night he vanished. His social security number had not been used, and he had no identification on his person. However, they were able to identify him via fingerprints. He was well-fed and in good health, except for his refusal to speak. His family was notified, but they said they had already grieved their lost man, and whoever was claiming to be him simply could not be. They said he was a hate and a stand-in for their dead relative, and demanded not to be contacted again. Marion paced all day, every day. Not in a frantic way, but just lumbering up and down the halls and outside. He smiled all the time and would be moving his mouth in a way that indicated talking or muttering, but he was dead silent. He had an unnerving habit of throwing his head back with his mouth wide open as if he were laughing heartily, but not a breath could be heard. If told to go to the dining room for a meal, he'd go and eat. But if nobody told him, he'd just keep pacing, never indicating hunger. If offered a cigarette, he'd smoke it in an oddly formal way, almost delicately, if that makes sense. But he never seemed to crave smoking. The man wanted nothing. If I talked to him, he appeared to be listening, periodically throwing his head back in that laughter-mimicking way of his. There was nothing to do for this man. Various medications were tried, but they did not affect him either positively or negatively. Occupational therapy did nothing because Marion would just grin and unless told to stay put, he'd get up and start pacing again. On my last day at the job, on my way to something better, the last thing I saw was Marion pacing in the parking lot, throwing his head back to laugh. Later, I wondered if all along I had been dealing with the ghost. All these years later, I still don't know. Just a quick aside, in one of my previous episodes, I mentioned the book The Spite House, written by Johnny Compton, and this story reminds me so much of one of the characters in the Spite House book. Again, I strongly recommend you read the book. It's so good. Aunt Kate's story, submitted by Reddit user theyareoutthere 75 I love Appalachian stories, especially the scary ones. A little backstory on my mama. She was in the sixth grade when she left school to go work cleaning, basically a maid, for a rich family that lived in Williamson, West Virginia. She was raised hard, but was the best woman I've ever known. She instilled in me honesty, work ethic, and many other wonderful things. She left me in 2016, and I miss her. Here's a little piece of her another mountain people for you. This story was told in our family when I was growing up. It used to scare me so bad. Anyway, my mama swore it was the truth and she was not known to tell lies and I should know because it was just me and her when I was growing up. Anyway, she was born and raised in a very rural and poor area of West Virginia. 
her and her seven or eight brothers and sisters were very poor. Because of this, and because it was what many country people did, her father raised a garden. Now, my mama nearly idolized her father and would go with him the distance from their house to the garden spot, which was a good piece off. This required that they push a wagon with wooden wheels past their neighbor's house. My mama was terrified of the old woman that lived beside them. Mama said they called her Aunt Kate. She was older and apparently had cataracts because Mama said her eyes were white. Mama said this particular summer was extremely hot and that she and her father had spent a good bit of time at the garden tending the vegetables and picking what was ready. As they pushed this big wagon up and in front of Aunt Kate's house, the old woman came out and yelled, Harrison, give me some of those beans you got there. My great-grandfather responded, Kate, we worked hard for them beans, and we ain't given them away. The old woman laughed and said that they would regret their decision. The two proceeded up the hill to their home and went about chores and other required duties. Mama said that she thought nothing more of it until it was time to sleep. According to Mama, with so many kids, some shared the bed and some on the floor where they slept with minimal coverings. Mama says she was drifting off to sleep when she heard someone or something, walked towards the room where she was sleeping. Knowing the sounds of her own home, she did not recognize who or what it could be. Mama always talked about how her father would tell them stories to scare them into being good, so due to this, she was easily scared. As the walking got closer, she reported she covered her head and lay still terrified of who or what was standing in the doorway. Mama reported that, Whatever it was, would turn and walk out of the room and back down the hallway all night long. Mama said she'd lay there all night terrified and scared to take her head out from under the blanket. The next morning, as the sun rose, the thing stopped. She stated that she then heard the familiar sound of her father moving quickly to dress. When she bolstered enough bravery, she immediately darted down the hallway and into the kitchen, where her father was placing green beans into a sack. The two did not speak, but walked quickly out the door and down the hill to Aunt Kate's house with a sack full of beans. Mama said old Aunt Kate was already sitting on her porch as if waiting on them to arrive. Her father said, old woman, take your booger, which is the Appalachia term for a spirit or demon, back. And then Kate started laughing and telling him, don't worry, Harrison, it won't bother you no more. Mama told other things that Aunt Kate did that alluded to her being someone very familiar with the dark side. And Mama was very honest. She was a Christian lady, and I never remember a time where I caught her in a lie or even heard her curse, and she swore that this really happened. The Figure in the Lake, submitted by Anonymous. I go to a university in Asheville, North Carolina, and in my freshman year here, I went camping a couple of times with some close friends. We always went to the same campsite by the French Broad River, pretty cheap and tucked away in the trees. This particular mid-November camping trip was like the first couple. We loaded up on supplies and piled into my friend Jacob's truck to go to the campsite. We set up our tent somewhere around dusk, ate food, and played around for a while. Finally, went to bed after midnight. I woke up sometime before dawn and I had to pee. I bundled up in a second sweater, 
because late night falls can get very chilly here, and went outside to do my business. When I say that our campsite was right next to the river, I mean it was right next to the river, less than 20 feet from the edge of the water. So I decided to pop a squat behind a tree on the riverbank and look at the water while I took a whiz. I was still pretty drowsy at that point, and the cold wasn't doing much to wake me up. I was just gazing out at the river, eyes almost glazed over, when I spotted something. A figure was standing in the middle of the freezing cold French Broad River at 3 in the morning. I'm pretty sure my pea stream retracted back inside of me. The moonlight was fairly bright, but I knew that sleepy eyes can play tricks on you. I squinted my eyes, widened them up as far as they would go, shielded them, and everything. It was definitely a person, about halfway across the river, standing waist-deep in the running water. I couldn't tell in the dark, but I'm pretty sure it was facing our camp. I don't know what gender it was, but the moonlight that reflected off of it was pale enough to make me think it wasn't wearing any clothes. Once my brain was fully awake and processing that the person was staring at me from the freezing river, I hiked my pants up and proceeded to wake up my friends and tell them what I had just seen. We all looked out of our tent, and sure enough, River Person is still standing there, completely still. We huddled back to the tent to figure out what we were going to do, and eventually we packed up our stuff and left before sunrise. The Banshee, submitted by Reddit user, Dems My Feet. I love the woods. I love the woods. The mountains are home, but there's some hollers you don't venture into. Bad blood, bad earth, something, but it's just not a place for humans to go. There's a holler like that next to the one my family settled in. The woods were blacker, the air colder, and crazy noises came from it at night. We were camping on family property next to the creek. I was with all my older cousins who loved to scare me, and I loved to be scared but always approached it all with disbelief as a result of them always teasing me and doing jump scares. It was late. The fire had died down because we only had it going for light and recreation. It had the chill of a late July night, but more than comfortable. I needed to use the bathroom and steeled myself because I figured one of the boys would hear me and come screw around with me. I walked my way out of the tent as quietly as possible and popped a squat behind a tree a little ways off. I stood up and scoped it out since the moon was full and shining. I was looking for one of the boys so he didn't terrify me. I'll say now that I started to shiver and could see my breath. I was thinking of that hauler and started to get freaked out. Walking back, I saw what I thought was a cousin hunched behind a tree waiting on me. I pulled a fox trick and circled back on him and decided I'd scare him. I walked up on him with an increasing dread but I still ignored feelings like that and persisted. I ran up behind and jumped and screamed. And when I did, this thing let out a noise I've never heard and jumped straight up into the tree. Now this was a tall tree and it jumped straight up. I flat out ran, screaming my ass off all the way back to the house. I didn't stop at the tent, didn't look back, just ran like a hound of hell was on my heels because I was convinced it was. I get in the house, and my great-grandmother is getting dressed to go to walk out, looking more worried than I'd ever seen her, muttering about her wards and something crossing. 
She saw me and about fell over asking where the boys were. Just then, they all ran in looking three shades of white. Turns out after my scare and screaming, they all woke up thinking it was probably just me being a ten-year-old girl and a bobcat or something scared me. Then that tree started to shake and limbs were being thrown from it. They said they heard growling and screaming. Then more noises like running coming down the bridge behind them. They booked it. Mama prayed over all of us and we didn't go back out until the next morning. Our tents had been shredded and thrown around into the coals of the fire. Nothing was left usable. We never camped out there again. And Mama spent all day hiking that ridge, burying things periodically. When I asked, she said that our perimeter and those wards would keep them out, or at least warn her when they crossed, and that's why she was in the process of dressing when I ran in. I never knew what they were. Mama said they were banshees, but I thought it was funny that I had jump-scared one all the way up into a tree. The Creature Submitted by Reddit user L. Funny Roy. Couple summers ago, I went on a camping trip with some friends just outside of Boone, North Carolina. The campsite was privately owned and all around awesome place. It's called Blue Bear, and I would definitely recommend it to anyone who wants good fun camping with no state officials to confiscate your booze. I think it was the second night we were there. We had acquired a half gallon of some evil-looking rum. Me and the two fellows I was camping with had opted for one of the more out-of-the-way primitive sites, about a mile hike down the ridge from the main campsites, where everyone else seemed to be staying. We knew no one was close enough to complain about our belligerence and had killed the entire half gallon in no more than 20 to 30 minutes. After that, the night only lasted about two hours. We ran around the woods shirtless, shoeless, and brainless until we passed out. If it sounds stupid, it's because it was. Lots of fun, though. Next thing I know, I'm awake. Wide awake. And I can hear something moving around, probably about 20 yards or so outside of the tent. I feel completely sober and very uneasy. I can feel and hear this thing's presence as it slowly moves through dead leaves and twigs. I'm thinking to myself that this is probably just a deer, maybe at the worst, a black bear. Neither would be much of a problem as we didn't have any food lying around or anything other than our tent, really. Then, this thing let out a call that was unlike anything I'd ever heard. It's almost impossible to describe what it sounded like, but I can say it was bird-like. Like somewhere between a turkey or an owl or something. It was loud as heck, but what scared me about it was its complexity. It sounded like this thing was speaking a full-fledged language. It cried out a few more times, and each time the call was just as complex, but completely different. It was extremely alarming and put me into full-on fight-or-flight mode. I sat up and began to build up the courage to go outside and face this creature. Then, just like that, it's morning, and I'm lying on my back just waking up. Both my buddies are already up and outside of the tent with the fire going. I instantly started losing it, and I asked if they heard the insane stuff that I had just heard hours before. Neither of them had, and because I was unable to reproduce the sound at all, I couldn't give them any idea of what it might have been. 
Fast forward to spring break of the next year, and I'm going camping again. This time, deep in the Nantahala National Forest, which is in the easternmost part of the state and is much more remote than our previous camp. We set up our camp about 8 or 10 miles to the entrance to the park. There were no roads in the area, and the closest civilization was probably 20 to 30 minutes away. This time, I'm with three guys other than myself. There is no drinking involved, and we are all sober. It's the third night of the trip, and it's cold. Our break took place in early March, and the nighttime temperatures are more than a few degrees below freezing. Once again, I awake in the middle of the night. I want to say it was around 2.30 or so in the morning. And damn if I don't hear the exact same freaky noises coming out from just behind me outside of the tent. I'm instantly terrified this time, as I now suspect that some truly strange things are going on because I know this is the exact same creature. This time, I'm determined to catch a glimpse of it, or something, before I never get another chance. I'm in my tent with my good friend and his brother. I go to wake up my friend, and once again, it's like I passed out or something, and I'm waking up in the early morning. Obviously, I burst out of the tent and start ranting about this unknown bird creature that I've now had two encounters with. No one knows what I'm talking about, and my friend doesn't recall me trying to wake him up at all. I guess I could probably have made this story a little shorter, as it is basically about me hearing a weird noise. But let me tell you, this noise was triggering full-on survival instincts, terrifying me on both occasions. I have spent hours on the internet listening to bird calls and other nocturnal noises from the Appalachia region. I've never been able to find anything that comes close to the way this thing sounded. Whatever it was, I find it to be an incredible coincidence that I heard it on these two separate occasions, miles and miles apart from each other and at completely different times of the year. If anyone has any good ideas as to what it is, please let me know. And that's all for our trip to the Appalachians, but I'm certain we'll return soon. I hope you enjoyed these stories as much as I did, and please let me know your thoughts if you have any family folklore you'd like to share even if you're not from the Appalachians. Our next episode will be our Halloween special. Halloween is my absolute favorite holiday. Christmas comes second, obviously, but I love Halloween so much. I'm going to read you some incredibly creepy tales set in the outdoors. So make sure you save your treats and set some time to listen in. Lastly, a huge thank you to all the listeners out there. I'm so happy to see the podcast and YouTube channel resonating with people and knew I'd find a little corner of the internet where spooky people like me would want to listen to stories of the strange and unexplained. If you have not yet, please like, follow, and subscribe. I hope you all stay safe, keep on being spooky, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to Chillers and Thrillers. I hope these spine-tingling tales of the paranormal have kept you on the edge of your seat. I invite you to join us again soon, and please, again, feel free to submit your own scary story or your theories to chillersandthrillers at gmail.com. Until then, stay curious, keep your eyes peeled for the unexplained, and never let the fear of the unknown deter you from embracing the extraordinary.